Welcome back to Conversations with the Leaky Cauldron, episode Big Vinti 20, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapters 19 through 23, but with a small hearkening back to both themes and content that we may have glossed over or just not had time for last time. Back with me, as usual, and happily, are Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, my esteemed colleagues. Hey, it's good to be back. How's it going? It's going well for good me. Good to be back, y'all. Yeah, good to have everybody back. And it's interesting, this week has sort of been like um, how it's been in the last two books for Harry and Ron and Hermione, just not, not always easy to find the same cart to be in during the Hogwarts Express, but now we've got our time together and it's all the more special for that, I think. Um, and so, where did we want to start with material we didn't cover last time around, or do we want to start with new material? I know that we finally have Horcruxes revealed. We have multiple times that we speak to Dumbledore and go into his pensieve. Um, we see we learn a little bit more about Draco and learn that Harry's not actually simply crazy and prejudiced or uh, prejudiced and uh, uh, crazy at all. We we have the death of a dear old I wouldn't say friend, but an Aramancula. I believe they're called. Um, what is the name of Hagrid's friend that had so long gotten him expelled from Hogwarts as a scapegoat of the Aragon? Yeah. Yes. And well, I suppose besides maybe hitting a bunch of content and themes, I did have a connection that I wanted to see whether y'all thought had any validity. There's something I noticed about Tom Riddle's. Uh, behavioral patterns he's very good at getting people to assume the worst of other people in that he uh he's very good at getting morphin his his uncle um hokey the house elf and hagrid the half-breed uh implicated in deeds that they were not responsible for and i was just wondering whether you observed that and what you what you thought of that that he's so capable of playing on people's natural prejudices um and uh, I, I thought two thoughts. One, I think more out there than the other. So I thought I might ask y'all about that connection and whether you saw it or whether you see anything to it and maybe whether you could explain it or saw more to it uh, to start off. That's intriguing. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. Um, I want to hear your thought now. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it yet. So yeah, I guess, what do you, what do you think that's all about? Well, I guess I have a charitable and an uncharitable way of reading that. That on the one hand, of course, you can make, I think, sort of the straightforward point that people are prejudiced and part of what evil is or what evil is allowed in this world is a result of that prejudice. But also, I think that if you look at this symbolically, and maybe this is too, too, uh, too symbolic a way to see it, it could also be the evil that those you don't expect can do. Because again, um, um, Hokey, more if we take Voldemort, even though obviously he has a character within this text, as in some way, um, devil it, the devil or devilish influence, could he not also be the sort of evil intention or evil act that props crops up in someone's mind who's potentially, say, been abused their entire life uh, when they finally snap like a morphin, finally murdering somebody, or Hokey being you know, sort of mistreated and watching her master treat her or, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, engorge herself, her entire existence. And, uh, well, I, I think it's kind of tougher to make that case with Hagrid because, you know, there is clearly that basilisk there. But um, that was just something I was sort of toying around with. I was just wondering where the onus of evil was coming from in these situations, whether literally and literally Tom Riddle and his ability to play on prejudices of others, or if there were any way to read that as um, sort of like Lucifer or a demon manifesting itself through the actions of those who would generally be oppressed. Yeah, I, I guess... Yeah, the way that you put that um, makes me suppose that there there could be something there, like in his um, framing these characters, he does seem to sort of sneak by uh, without arousing much suspicion, um, and it's emphasized more than once how you know 
he he's so handsome he's so sort of put together right um he sort of looks the part um and i think that you know dumbledore sort of emphasizes how much he's surprised that harry maybe not surprised but he wants to emphasize how remarkable it is that harry has never been drawn to um the the kind of attractions that uh, Slughorn says, you know, wizards of a certain caliber are always, you know, interested in these things, right? Well, that's that's just not the case with Harry. So I, I think there is something kind of interesting going on there about, you know, people's prejudices towards, in, in like a negative sense, but also in a positive sense, if that makes sense, like that they expect the best out of people who act a certain way and they expect the worst out of people who appear a certain way. You know, there's like a a real mastery on Tom Riddle's part of of using that that allows him to kind of get away with a great deal, and then and then to the point where people don't even want to um, share their memories or like delve into the the truth of it anymore. They prefer to just be afraid. It's almost like that's preferable to them. It's it's really strange. Um, yeah, there's definitely something there. I think that's a really interesting question, Alex, um, and framing. You know, um, I, I too noticed a little bit of how much is uh, emphasized about Tom Riddle's appearance, but also that he um, can change like the tone of his voice to sort of be flattering. Um, it's almost as though he has the ability to know how other people need to be spoken to. I just sort of mm-hmm. remember, um, maybe it could be from the movie or maybe it's from the second book, the way that he um, spoke to Hagrid almost with pity or a sense of understanding about Hagrid's um, you know, affinity for animals, right? Like, hey man, I'm, I'm looking out for you or I'll have to turn you in or something like that. Um, but, but like his capacity to sort of be silver tongued, I think, um, you know, I think that that's a, a quality often associated with the devil. If I sound distracted, it's cause I'm, I'm scanning my, um, my bookshelves for the screw tape letters, um, like C.S. Lewis's, ah. uh, his, his, his book where he writes letters from a senior demon to like a junior nephew demon about how best to manipulate people. And it has to do with distraction. It has to do with, um, uh, you know, certain letters do talk about like appealing to, um, to people like distracting people from, from their, the true, the things that truly matter or the things that could possibly make them good. Um, I can't find it. Uh, unfortunately, I should have taken it out earlier, but that's beside the point. The point is, is um, I think that, with Tom Riddle, there's obviously like, you know, and this is something that has been emphasized by more than one character that he continually makes choices that are bad, right? Like he himself may be getting as close as possible to being truly evil, but there's even in him, like there's a a part of him that isn't right. And he's like continually killing that by splitting his soul so many times and encasing it in all of these objects, but that um, to the point where there might be a piece of his soul still in his body and the way that Dumbledore described it, um, but it's very weakened, right? Um, But I don't, I don't know, like, does he appeal to their baser nature? Uh, Is he like a, 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 a worm in the apple all of these people that he gets to do bad things for him I mean that sort of makes sense in like the in like the example of Slughorn right that he um you know he he's tempted I suppose by flattery by appealing to Slughorn's pride all of that I don't know how that works with with Hokey or with Morphin but maybe there is something something there I'm not sure well, and what do y'all think about the role of Slughorn in all this? Apparently, this seemingly harmless, kind, laughing old man in, in, in the audiobook 
Um, he's actually, he often chuckles when he speaks. I think the voice actor does a wonderful job. Jim Dale, right? Um, and uh, he's just, oh, good job, Harry. And he seems so benign. And, um, and then we come to find out that he is actually the one that, ex that gave the key to the ultimate evil of, uh, to the ultimate evil character. Uh, what did y'all think about, A, the, the task that Dumbledore gave to Harry the first time he had homework and his inability to take it uh, adequately seriously in the beginning? And um, was it um, he had to put away some selfishness in order to even achieve it because he did need some sort of divine help and in some way help that was given to him from the person. And this actually reminds me quite a bit of Tom yeah. Riddle. And I think they did a good job about, of this in the movie where they have Harry actually, I think, mimic what Tom Riddle said, like almost word for word, as if he's trying to himself pump off and have the same effect as Tom Riddle or showing you what Harry could be, that he could be just like, Voldemort if he chose to be I think sort of like your point earlier um Wes but um that it is the luck of luck the Felix Felicis that he won from Slughorn also by uh me you know from this half-blood prince who we know who that is and so it's so interesting that he's such a good potions teacher at this particular moment whereas we've had our doubts in the past and even doubts that he expresses within this own text uh, about Harry Potter's ability but that it, there's something that Slughorn gives to Harry that leads to Harry getting what he wants from Slughorn. What does that mean? And what does that mean that uh, uh, that's also essentially what Voldemort got from him, right? Except for, for his own dark means rather than for the sort of figure of God the Father, Albus Dumbledore. What did, what did y'all do with this Slughorn piece in learning about these Horcruxes? And yeah. I, I really like the chapter where Harry finally takes the Felix Felixis and um, has this uh, kind of string of of wonderful, you know, chance occurrences fall into place for him. Um, I think it's such a cool. I mean, it's it kind of is reminiscent almost of when you finally learn about the Time Turners back in the third book, and you have that like marvelous set piece where they're you know using the Time Turners to save uh buckbeak it, it, it's reminiscent of that and in in a lot of ways i guess um i know that this book sort of most closely maps onto the second book but i thought that was kind of a cool way in which it also does um the third i, I also yeah i think that slughorn's um shame is so interesting here how um harry doesn't seem to consciously manipulate um slughorn um yes the first time through yeah he tries to use almost the exact same words as tom riddle did in the memory the part of it he had but the second time once he's acting on under the the luck um potion and you know things are going and and working out he's he's able to you know cast the the wine refilling spell that he could never do before um he is able to just um so skillfully uh, use Slughorn's words against him, right? As as Hagrid's falling asleep and saying terrible, right? Um, it's not Slughorn's singing voice, right? That that he's saying is terrible. It's it's what happened, right? And he and he tells the story of what happened, right? He he um, it entail it like he it involves him sharing a very painful, not even a memory, right? Because he wasn't even aware of it really but it's it's what he was told by Voldemort right that in that um in, in an attempt to you know break Harry's spirit telling him how his parents died it turns out that that also is like instrumental in getting back um Slughorn's you know willingness willingness to to investigate this this particular memory um yeah so there's just all these different ways in which the um and it, it, it's reminiscent of Lewis, it's reminiscent of Tolkien, right? That, that evil, part of what it is, is its own undoing. Like it, it provides the, the ammunition for um, its own downfall. And um, just how, how, yeah, how exactly do you connect the, um, the dispensing of the knowledge of the Horcruxes with, with uh, evil leading to its own downfall, which is a concept I agree with and would add Plato uh, echoes the same thought. 
Yeah. Also, in the case of the Horcruxes in particular, it seems like, you know, as the young Tom Riddle says, you know, um, doing this more than once will will multiply your chances of survival, right? It will multiply and magnify your power. Whereas um, Slughorn <laughs> points out that, well, that's that's just doing more damage to your soul, actually. You're, you're fracturing yourself in the most profound way, like, like what are you talking about? Uh, oh, but this is totally just intellectual, right? We're, we're just sort of like imagining this. This isn't, you know, it, it's real interesting how he um, manages to sort of convince himself that it's okay to uh, to talk about this with Tom Riddle because he's so brilliant, because he's, um, you know, so flattering. Um, and then it seems like all along he knows that it's the wrong thing, um, but he just can't, uh, I, I guess he just can't help himself because there's that, that tantalizing possibility that, um, you know, as Tom rises in the world, right, he'll remember this, this teacher that he uh, learned so much from, right? But, but underneath that is like the sneaking suspicion, it seems like um, that he, has just revealed something that's going to be an important stepping stone. And like, it's not even that he tells him exactly how this works, right? He gives him enough clues, it seems like, but then it takes, you know, the, the new Lord Voldemort, like many years of going out and, and figuring out the, the actual method, it seems like. Um, so it's interesting how it is in a sense, purely intellectual, right? It's just like the idea of it, that um, is kind of planted there, and that that, in some way, is enough to, um, yeah, cause this this deep shame, and require this very drastic, kind of therapy from from Harry Potter to to get him to look back at this memory um, as as it actually happened, and sort of make peace with it. Yeah, yeah and, and just on the. The note of the, the Horcruxes, I mean, quite literally, it is a weakening, even though it's an attempt to strengthen, right? Like, um, it's only strong insofar, insofar as nobody knows about it, right? And, um, you know, Slughorn, at the, when we first meet him, he's hiding himself, right? Like, he is maybe more than many, many other people. He's a great threat to Voldemort's existence because he knows the secret, um, you know, um, uh, and like getting the information itself created a threat to his existence. Um, but I think also, I think in that this scene, I think it's chapter 22, I think it's important that we see that um, Slughorn is like really drunk uh, and you know, in Vino Veritas, I suppose. But um, we've talked about how hedonistic Slughorn is, right? Like how, obviously how drawn he is to celebrity and, um, you know, there's an arrogance and like a sense of power that he's like rubbing shoulders with people who are famous or he's shepherded them um, into or alongside um, their journey to fame or whatever. But he's always eating and um, drinking and thinking about the next party. And and on the one hand, that's totally benign. But on the other hand, maybe in this moment, it does kind of look like an attempt to like fill um, the body with pleasures of the flesh to escape like some gnawing shame in the mind. Um, and... I think that's part of why he's so hesitant to give like the true nature of the the memory. We we don't see very many people. I mean, very occasionally Hagrid is drunk and sometimes the butterbeer seems to be alcoholic, but like, I don't know. It just seems significant to me that, that Slughorn is super drunk when this is revealed. Um, like his guard is down. Like some, I mean, it seems like this, this amplifies his sense of shame, but also maybe amplifies his sense of, of right and wrong um but uh yeah i mean i mean to west your point about this this kind of classic idea that evil is this like 
on its face seems really strong, but it, it gives to its eventual victor um, the very skills that it needs, or at least it gives the roadmap. Um, it, you know, it has a weakness. You see that all the time in Lord of the Rings, um, where evil defeats itself, or evil, evil presents the other side with an understanding of its weaknesses by its demonstrations of, of strength. And that, I think the prophecy is another good example of that. Um, where like Voldemort in marking this child as the threat to his existence, he grants the child the very ability to, uh, to combat it. And I think when, when Harry is really frustrated with Dumbledore, um, he says something like, yeah, what can I do? I can love. So what? Right. I don't remember exactly where that, where that is. Um, but that is like, I think Dumbledore says like, yeah, exactly. That is the thing that you have been granted the ability to do. We will eventually see what that means, you know, um, no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. But um, yeah, I think that that is, and it's on, in my book, it's on page 509, right? Um, uh, that he granted the skill to his eventual opponent, the one thing that would eventually have the capacity to bring him down, um, which I think is important. Right, and even then how Harry acquires the information from Slughorn, not only getting him drunk, appealing to his base nature in a way that Tom Riddle obviously did by you know finding out what his favorite foods were and getting him those sugared pineapples, those crystallized pineapples that he still enjoys eating so much, which is itself just the most decadent sounding treat. Um, but it's by appealing to his love for his mother, Lily Evans, and his sense of shame and potentially bringing about um, the information necessary for Lord Voldemort to become Lord Voldemort and then eventually kill one of his former favorite students. And it's interesting that you make that connection to the fact that he was so desired both by Dumbledore and by Voldemort. And in fact, Dumbledore did not have the upper hand until he brought Harry. And so mm -hmm. it's as if Slughorn could have been a really big threat, but even within him, it's his, and only while he's drunk with Felix Felicis on your side, um, can Harry manage to um, sort of tip the scales by, by mentioning his mother, who Slughorn ha has so frequently brought up. Uh, you know, it's like, it's her. It's that stained Lily Evans that you claim to have loved as a student who, you know, died so that I could be alive and I'm the chosen one and I have to fight Voldemort. So you need to give me this information. Um, is I think, yeah. um, I, I just, I think, do you mind if I read a passage for the, for our listening audience? Cause I think it's, Not at all. it's just, I think it's the, it's the like clearest distillation of like the, the, I think a, a moral claim to the book. Um, it's not in on five ten, where he's where Harry is very frustrated, and this is great in the audiobook because finally Dumbledore kind of yells at Harry, like get it through your thick skull, um, and he says, "If Voldemort had never murdered your father, would he have would he have imparted in you a furious desire for revenge? Of course not. If he had not forced your mother to die for you, would he have given you a magical protection he could not penetrate? Of course not." Harry, don't you see? Voldemort himself created his worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. Have you any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? All of them realize that one day, among their many victims, there is sure to be one who rises against them and strikes back. Voldemort is no different. Always he was on the lookout for the one who would challenge him. He heard the prophecy and he leapt into action, with the result that he had not only handpicked the man most likely to finish him, he handed him uniquely deadly weapons. And he goes on to say um, uh, that it's remarkable that Harry has never been seduced by the dark arts, not even for a second shown the slightest desire to become one of his followers. The only protection, the ability to love, is one that, that is the only protection that can possibly work against the lure of power. In spite of all the temptation you have endured, all the suffering, you remain pure of heart just as pure as you were at the age of 11 when you stared into a mirror that reflected your heart's desire and it showed you only the way to thwart Lord Voldemort, not immortality or riches. 
Have you any idea how few wizards could have seen what you saw in the mirror? Um, I, I just, I think that that's so, so cool because it like reminds us that this has all been like designed towards a single end, you know? Um, that is a magical passage and it just makes me want, I mean, yeah. there's, there's so much to dig into there. Not only putting Harry directly as sort of a figure of Christ to literally call him, calling him pure, of heart, pure of right. intention, while having endured the temptations of a Luciferian figure. But what what really interested me, and what I'm wondering about from y'all is, what do you think are the uniquely deadly weapons that he mentions there? And again, something I want to bring up that West has been has brought up before is, I really did not remember this part of the text at all. And Wes, you had admitted that in our first pre-show tonight that you you sort of didn't remember this either. And I, I wonder what it is that made it so that we didn't. I'm interested if you did or didn't as well, Sarah, you might've taught this more recently though. But um, also what do you think, are those deadly weapons like the parcel tongue or like the desire for revenge? Or what do you think they they were? I'm, I'm very interested in that. Yeah, I well, I think as far as the, the weapons, it does seem like it's like the, well, the, the very difficult understanding, apparently, that love is a more powerful force um, than any kind of, you know, evil ambition can be. Um, like that physically manifests in the moment when Voldemort casts his killing curse and it bounces off, right? And Harry only has a little scar and he's, you know, he's almost wiped out. Um, I, that's what I take that to be, essentially. Um, I... I guess as far as not remembering stuff, it's like as I went through these books, I would read them over again whenever a new one came out. So I ended up reading the earlier books a bunch of times, but I think the sixth book I I might have only read once uh, or twice. And so I just like when you get towards the end of the book, you just are like turning pages to see what happens next. Because mm-hmm. I think Rowling really really excels at writing these kind of climactic you know, everything's like coming to a head kind of thing. Um, and, and I just, so I, I think a lot of details just kind of slip by. Like I remember certain things, but um, most of it's just kind of a blur of like awesomeness after a while. So yeah, I, but I, I think it, you know, clearly her concern is to like show us Harry being really great in many ways, really struggling in other ways but particularly being great and struggling with like understanding the simple act of love or kindness or friendship, right? Like that seems to be the real thing she's trying to do with all these pages and all these stories is like give a, a fresh and like interesting spin on the concept of love. And I think it has a lot to do with maybe the Christian concept of love, but I think it also has to do just with her, you know, sort of personal fascination with good and evil and, um, you know, power, political and and personal. And I I don't really know beyond that, but that's the sense that I get. Like magic, the the strongest form of magic does seem to be love. That's like the thesis of the whole series coming out. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, in that passage that I sort of skipped over, um, Dumbledore lists like the ability to see into his mind, right? That like kind of unusual connection between their their minds. There's the parcel mouth. Um, I, there's a, a line at the end that I didn't read, a line at the end of the scene where where Dumbledore basically says, Harry is so hung up on the prophecy, you know, this idea that one of them is going to die. And naturally, right, if you heard that as a kid, that would uh, kind of freak me out, especially when you know how powerful he is. Um, But Dumbledore says um, uh, he has never paused to understand the incomparable power of a soul that is untarnished and whole. And And Harry says, but, you know, it all comes down to the same thing. I have to kill him. And Dumbledore says, of course, you've got to, but not because of the prophecy, because you yourself will never rest until you tried. We both know it. 
Imagine, please, for a moment that you never heard the prophecy and how would you feel about him? Think. And Harry watched Dumbledore striding up and down in front of him and thought of his mother, his father, and Sirius, of Cedric Diggory, all of the terrible deeds he knew Voldemort had done. A flame seemed to leap inside his chest, searing his throat. I'd want him finished, said Harry quietly, and I'd want to do it. Of course you would, he said Dumbledore. You see, the prophecy does not mean you have to do anything, but the prophecy caused Voldemort to mark you as his equal. In other words, you are free to choose your way, quite free to turn your back on the prophecy. But he continues to set store by it, which makes it certain that blah, blah, blah. So at the end, it's like Harry realizes it's the difference between walk, being dragged into battle and walking in with your head held high. And I think two things jump out of me about that passage. One, that like there's this flame that leaps inside of his chest that sears his throat. First of all, I think fire is a, obviously a really common image throughout all of the books. Goblet of Fire, Phoenix Fire, the fire around the mirror of Erised. Um, I don't fire. I sort. I guess I sort of associate with courage, with Gryffindor and its colors. But just it seems like he has this orientation towards justice, towards right and wrong that has been nurtured through really small events, like it in classes. You know whether or not to make fun of somebody or. You know, what is the right thing to do in a, in a kind of seemingly insignificant circumstance? But then there's been all these other opportunities for him to, like, practice the habit of, like, justice, right? And um, it seems as though that is a really unique, a uniquely deadly weapon because it will make him choose to face Voldemort with his head held high rather than drag his feet, right? Like. Um, as he as as he says, you know, and and it will make him not turn his back on on the task at hand, right? It'll make him like push through really difficult moments. Um, but it's like this internal compass that, you know, um, I think we it sort of comes back to where did this where does this compass come from? Like he he grew up in terrible circumstances, as did Tom Riddle. So why is Harry's compass pure um and tom's was not is tom just was tom just like a bad seed um he didn't seem to have you know, the or, golden compass <laughs> right well there you go but um i don't know i think i think that that sense of knowing your parents died for you as maybe as opposed to died uh not for you but like in spite of you um of i you. can see that being like yeah, I guess um, in a way, especially if his mom, if Voldemort's mother died of um, being abandoned by her beloved um, and, and he was the product of of that brief relationship and a reminder of her abandonment or something like that. I don't know. Or, yeah, or just I, childbirth, I think, I think maybe that's, might have gotten her. Right. So I mean, I, and oh, yeah, that, that would be another way of looking at it. Maybe that is the thing that he under, that that changes how Harry understands love and affection. Um, and, and it keeps his compass like um, faced in a proper, to a proper North, as opposed to um, for Voldemort, whose compass really seems directed at his own preservation at the expense of whatever else. But um, well, that's I, just, I love this, this passage. I, I, yeah. I don't know about you guys. I, I, I hadn't taught this, but I remember this passage really, really well because it is, uh, I don't know, I, I just, I remembered it. Um, I don't know what it was. I think it's extre extraordinarily well written and it presents, I think, also like a political argument. Um, I know I definitely taught um, the order of the, not the order, the fifth book, the order of the phoenix. And I had my students read critical articles and one of them was about love as like a, a tool of political resistance particularly in like cases of rebellion under tyranny so if you think about like star wars and the hunger games and the order of the phoenix as um uh basically you know a rebel alliance fellowship of the ring is another great example where like rebel alliances are bound by like uh filial affection um and like a, a sense of like 
democracy as a kind of love. Um, and I, that was a really interesting critical article for kids to read. I'll send that around to you guys. Well, that's great because you you both know, and this sort of leads into one of our additional summer projects here that I'm teaching Macbeth for the first time. And I just see so many connections between what you say about Voldemort making the wrong choice over and over again and sort of multiplying it and his sort of schismatic force over the wizarding community and even over his own soul. Reminds me of uh, late in Dante's um, Inferno when we meet Ali and Muhammad who have their face and uh, torso respectively cut open in a schismatic fashion. Mm -hmm. Something that Macbeth literally does is kills a traitor who has made a schism in Scotland by cutting him in half, but then suffers his own sort of mental schizophrenic um, break during the course of the play because of the decisions he makes, even though he rises in rank and ability to have uh, assassins, former soldiers kill for him. He loses his mental, he loses his mental clarity. He also lo loses his uh, peace of mind, his ability to sleep and his, um, his, his, what I forget exactly what he calls it, but his feeling of safety within the world uh, to be thus, but to be thus safe is better. Something like that. That's just a close paraphrase to what he says, but just that to be thus uh, is nothing, but to be safely thus. Yes, precisely. But to be safely thus, and that seems to be very much like Voldemort who controls by fear in this tyrannical way and has people killed and just as Macbeth does, and that those are sort of partial solutions that damage you irreparably by making them because they take away something that is so valuable like that, like your feeling of comfort and safety in the world, your ability to say amen before your God, um, uh, because that's something Voldemort demonstrates an inability to do, to speak honestly, even when he's in the presence of Dumbledore. Uh, who everybody seems to speak honestly to, even the Minister of Magic, uh, to their own benefit. Um, but uh, Voldemort seems to be one of the few people that, or he, he will not even level with, um, with Dumbledore. And I don't know, I see a connection between that and Macbeth's inability to say amen after he, uh, after he does his first ill deed. But it's interesting to see that if... If Dumbledore, or excuse me, if Voldemort is like a Macbeth, then I, I suppose Harry Potter would be something like St. George. He does literally slay dragons and a dragon-looking evil man in book seven, or at least with snake nostrils. So he's, he's getting there. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to miss, mention that connection. I did have one question sort of adjacent to this, which is what did you think about the specific or the particular objects that, that Voldemort chose to make Horcruxes? And that he was so keen to get these sort of extraordinary objects from the four founders of Hogwarts. Did you see that as sort of like a negative allegory for his attempt to affect education in the wrong way? Or that he is the like negative jewel or the dark rose of an education? Like he, he sees like a miser, the, the, the cost of everything, but the value of nothing. He sees the power of Horcruxes, but not the, the true cost of them. He sees, uh, these four founders objects is highly valuable, but doesn't understand the true lessons that those founders sought to, sought to confer. Um, uh, I guess, what did y'all think about, uh, the fact that he couldn't just choose easy to like hide like wood branches, but had to have the best of the best. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was very interesting how Harry, and Dumbledore are kind of like thinking through this together. And, and it's cool how whenever they sort of look at memories, they tend to like model readers, like trying to interpret what they've seen just now. And, um, and so Harry's like first thought is like, yeah, just make it like anything, like any overlookable object. And Dumbledore is like, well, no, that's like a port key. And that's fine for, um, you know, useful things like that. But but if you were Lord Voldemort, like you're forgetting Harry, how much he cares about his trophies, right? That's like the first thing that he cares about um, in that memory when Dumbledore first meets him, right? Uh, he's got the trophies in the in the wardrobe there. And, yeah, and so I thought it was cool how um, Harry's kind of thinking about it. I think Harry also throws out the idea that like, well, if he wants to be immortal, he should just, you know, create a philosopher's stone, basically, right? Like that's that's doable, clearly. and 
that makes you immortal. So like, why didn't he do that? And, and again, Dumbledore is like, yeah, but it's like, that's, that's not his style. It, it just shows like sort of how profoundly right. Harry doesn't get the, the mindset. And interestingly, how, how deeply Dumbledore mm. does seem to understand the mindset. It, it's cool. Like, it's the kind of thing that, that readers are probably like turning over. And so we have to get set straight by, by Dumbledore. Well, and, and we'll learn kind of maybe more about why Dumbledore may understand Tom Riddle and or slash Voldemort even more than Harry can or does, right? Like, yeah, Harry does seem to kind of not, not totally understand the impulse, right? Um, or the thought process. Um, I, yeah, I think... Um, him using all of these uh all of these uh items of significance right um the the ring is a item that simplifies or not simplifies god it's not even a word um that uh signifies his heritage right his heritage as um you know the last descendant of Slytherin it's his family right but it's in, in encapsulating a piece of his soul into it and, and the way that he takes it, um, I think is a demonstration of power, right? Um, and by doing the same thing with a locket from Slytherin and a goblet from Hufflepuff and the snake um, and all of the, and like the diary, it's, it's a way to, to like exert power over a thing. And he doesn't want to exert power over ordinary things. He wants to exert power over all of the things. So I think picking things like, you know, really prized possessions of, of the, the fathers and mothers of these houses at the school is a way to kind of exert some power over A, their history, um, and B, like, um maybe education or knowledge in some way like um you know Dumbledore says it it has to do with him never really feeling at home anywhere else but Hogwarts which is curiously similar to to Harry but I think it's it's like um because Dumbledore really never um fully trusted him the way all of these other students do it's it's like a way to assert himself over as like the 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 dominant the 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 powerful um arbiter of um past present future of of all things knowable right um i don't know that's sort of how i interpreted it what do you yeah, what do you think alex i want to run with that because i i like the connection that west made about this not being voldemort's style and that what you continued on and his desire to oppress people and exert power and influence over them uh, when he's at the orphanage with those two kids that God, what did he do in the cave with them? And um, uh, they just never came. They were never the same afterwards. And then they, like you were saying earlier, Wes, uh, prefer to live in fear than to even tell the truth like so many after him. And what does that mean? And his desire to collect trophies and to not be dependent on anybody, not going, you know, not even accepting Dumbledore's help going to this weird wizarding uh, community by himself without help. I mean, not even Harry Potter did that, or I suppose especially Harry Potter didn't do that. And also, I would add to that Dumbledore's understanding of his desire to be special, which I think you were touching on too, Sarah, that uh, part of his his desire to have these great objects, I think both of you actually touched on this, is that he he always goes for the the sort of Bi biography movements, right? Like he's always trying to add to his personal glory in sort of an Alcibiades sort of way. He changes his name so that he stands out. He changes his appearance so that he stands out. He does something that no other wizard has ever done in and multiplies it. And he, he calls this greatness. And I just think there's that great moment where Dumbledore says, greatness you call it, or you call it greatness what you've been doing? Because it, again, it's like, it's like Voldemort gets all the trappings of being great and being special but he, he doesn't get the essence of it. And therein hmm. lies the, the disagreement between him and Dumbledore, I think. Or that's what I'm wondering about. 
Yeah, there's there's that interesting moment where he seems to be on the point of of attacking Dumbledore, right? Just as he's about to leave, and he holds back. Um, I wasn't sure quite what to make of that. Like, is that him feeling that he is, um, you know, he's he's not worth fighting right now? Is that him feeling that if he does this, he could actually lose? So it's like a fear thing. Um, and by the same token, like Dumbledore seems completely, you know, ready to be killed at any time, actually, right? He doesn't like have, it doesn't, in evidence anyway, elaborate like safeguards there that, um, that seems to be kind of an interesting element of this too. Like he, his vulnerability is maybe not like a totally new thing. Like he might have always sort of been open to um, attack, but that something did hold Voldemort back even back then. Um, and and I think this is kind of curious too, like the way that Dumbledore seems to sort of flaunt his withered hand, right? Like his, his destroyed hand. It's like showing Voldemort like, hey, I am vulnerable like i i know um more than you right and and what i know includes this thing about dying right that, that that's like constantly kept before voldemort's eyes in the person of dumbledore and it's like he can't like if he were to to attack him it would like prove dumbledore right in some weird way um i'm, I'm not sure quite what to make of that moment but i, I thought it was interesting and it, and it's curious how he um he sort of still hasn't really told harry what happened with the hand but like the hand by itself kind of tells a story that's interesting sort of that obi-wan darth vader moment from the, mm. the a new hope where totally, totally. Me down i'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine because i will just taught the lesson that you cannot handle on the dark side which is that everybody dies including those that we consider great. And Voldemort is doing anything possible not to learn that lesson and not to have that lesson happen to him. Whereas Dumbledore is illustrating sort of like a dying, resurrecting God, like Fox, his demon familiar, the Phoenix, that everybody mm -hmm. dies. And that if you don't recognize that, you're not going to aim towards the right thing. In fact, this is such a nerdy reference, but in the Star Wars Clone Wars series, that's something Yoda directly says is a weakness about the dark side, that they are obsessed with the material world. And that means with, like you were saying earlier, um, either Sarah or Wes, power and wealth and glory and immortality so that you can enjoy these, um, what you think are goods for eternity. But that um, the Jedi or the light side or, or, you know, Dumbledore's army seem to understand is that that's no life worth living trying to pursue a false immortality at the expense of all the things that make life good. And that's, I think that's something, first, first of all, I mean, maybe you know better than I, Alex, but that's something that I always emphasize when I was teaching the Iliad. It was something that I think haunts Hamlet. Um, it also haunts Macbeth. Um, you know, coming face to face with your own mortality and trying to decide, right. like, What's what's better? It's something that 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 walks the pages of Lord of the Rings. It's something that the elves, the immortal elves, lead a a seemingly uh, decent, peaceful, but unsatisfying life. There's something melancholy about all of right. their existence that the the mortal men, even the men like the Dunedain men who live for who live such long lives they themselves also die. And there's like something about, there's something, at least in the Iliad, there's something about glory that almost requires death, even, uh, and that like, you know, that's something that the deathless gods cannot have. I, I'm reminded of that line that Wes, you encouraged us to use um, in our uh, NorwestCon um, uh, presentation. It's like when, when uh, Dumbledore visits Harry in the, uh, hospital wing after the interaction with Professor Quirrell and he says to the well-organized mind death is but the next great adventure and you know 
Dumbledore has an, a pensive full of little bottles full of memories. I mean, his is, his is a, a very well-organized mind. And I think he presents us with this like enormous amount of strength that comes from vulnerability, um, a knowledge of like his own nature and an acceptance of that. Whereas I think, you know, Voldemort's weakness, just to get back to something we were talking about earlier, weakness, his, like what, what sets him up is like, he, he pursues these like grave acts of violence and all of this power and skill, but he doesn't pursue it because that's who he is by nature. He pursues it because he's afraid of what he is by his nature, right? So it's like almost by running away from the thing that you are, you weaken yourself, right? As opposed to leaning into it um, and like owning it and figuring out what to make of it and how to like square yourself with it. Um, I think that that is a that is a huge part of these books. I I also happen to think it's a huge part of like all classic books is you know death, but um, but that that's just my reading of things. And I I know that that's pretty depressing, but but I think it. I I don't think you can. I don't know. I think there's like a a liberty in in um in their in an acceptance of it as opposed to being shackled as he is literally to objects right um in order to remain alive it's like the it's like the definition of materialism i completely agree with that what do you think wes yeah absolutely i when you started talking about it that way i i thought of the um (laughs) actually of the apparition lessons what the guy says um whose name suddenly strikes me as being like very similar to Horcrux, actually. His name is Twycross. And he says, right. he says, uh, turn on the spot, feeling your way into nothingness, moving with deliberation. <laughs> so yeah, like the, the power of, of feeling your way into nothingness is to be like freed from the constraints in, in a pretty remarkable way um i I think (laughs) i think one of my favorite parts is how um how close ron gets to passing his uh his uh what's it called apparition (laughs) test (laughs) and and you know uh loses his eyebrow (laughs) well i do want to talk about that some at some point but we're getting about to where i'm gonna have to pack it in so do we do we have any final thoughts before we get to our final episode on book six before our, our book seven extravaganza? And I, I suppose it might be a little early to announce, but I'd be sort of excited to mention our, our new summer project that we've been agreeing on and thinking about how to specifically dive into. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Well, so, um, Sarah, when we were talking briefly on Monday, you had brought up the idea of wanting to do a project. Uh, well, well, you know, the conversation started with talking about finishing this project and the Lord of the Rings and how you, you thought that the Narnia books just wouldn't take very long because they're just not as complex as the Lord of the Rings. And uh, you had mentioned another English author we might get to who I think we've all been very interested in for a long time now, which is William Shakespeare. And um, I threw that idea out to Wes and he pretty much immediately agreed. And now we're just trying to figure out whether we want to go thematically, whether we want to account for the fact that I'm going to see As You Like It and Romeo and Juliet at the Old Globe Theater here in San Diego this summer. Maybe y'all are going to see some Shakespeare as well. Um, But I'm just very excited about that project and the fact that we're going to be, uh, you know, hitting two great English authors this summer. however we do it. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I love, I love both. Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about Shakespeare and um, well, Wes, what do you, what do you think about that? We had been throwing around maybe doing Spanish or Italian or Latin or Greek and looks like English is the language of the summer. It's it's fun to think about how um, English can be like understood as a 
uh, almost a foreign language. Uh, um, Shakespeare's a good way to think about it that uh, he isn't half as bad as like uh, some of the really old stuff. But but yeah, it's been a long time since mm. I've read Shakespeare, um, and and definitely a long time since I've read a uh, a Lewis. You know, that's I don't know how long, <laughs> but yeah, at some point I'd be interested in getting back to him. But um, Summer of Shakespeare is just like a a great plan and yeah as much as possible finding local um plays and if not that then you know listening to them or watching them on online is very very doable and i think makes it a lot more enjoyable there yeah, are maybe we can, so yeah. many good i was just gonna say there are so many good did uh, like digital copies of performances um I, I just having taught a lot of the plays um there are a lot of really good pieces out there. There's also a lot of real bad ones, but um, that's the that's the nature I think of of any Shakespeare. But I'm in the middle of like Tech Week, and next week is like Hell Week for a, a performance of Twelfth Night at my school, and that's how the director talks about Shakespeare is as though it is kind of a foreign language, and it's our task to like get the kids to be speaking in this foreign language so that the audience follows, you know, I was telling them just today that like, you know, when we hear something that we're not reading along at the same time, like we don't hear all of the words. Um, your brain just doesn't often, doesn't very, very, very often you don't processing fast enough to hear and process every single word in the right order, which is why lecture, can be can be tough um, uh, without something to follow along, um, but um, that's even more true with Shakespeare because so many of the words are really archaic. So one of the things I said to my the kids in the play um, so many times in the last couple of days is like you need to communicate with your body and your voice and your face what are the really key words so that the audience like almost subconsciously latches on to like. What, is, what are the five words in this passage that they need to know um, that give you character, that, that add to the plot, that drive your scene, that give you intention, et cetera. And you need to land them. You need to have an action. I mean, you need, they, need to be, they need to be the words that the audience hears and understands so that like the key words aren't lost. But all that is to say that it's very much like a foreign language. So um, not that other foreign languages are important. They are. But. Of course, of course, and we we look to get to many of those over the coming years. I think, I think I I really look forward to doing some French and then French poetry, mm -hmm. um, German, and maybe some Goethe at some point. I definitely want to do Spanish and Don Quixote, even though I know that that's medieval Spanish and so even harder. But that just makes it all the more interesting mm. to me. Maybe some Latin and Virgil, and some Greek in the New Testament slash the Iliad and Odyssey. And I think those would also be uh, very valuable pursuits in the future. And well, you know, there's just so much to do, y'all. There's a lot of gold to, to be digging. We're truly 49ers in this area. Um, and so, another Al wonderful- Alex, you should, yeah. be a little, you should be a little more ambitious, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, I suffer from lack of scope and imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, uh, we, we live in a wonderful historical moment and something about Shakespeare is he had to live in frequent fear of plague, which, you know, even afflicted the, afflicted his career two two years during which he wrote two of his most famous poems, Rave of Lucretia and Venus and Adonis, uh, during those two years, plague was breaking out in London because they didn't have any sewage. They didn't have any plumbing. And so it was filthy. And so it's like, we live in a wonderful time where we don't usually have to worry about that, though we do need to worry about measles again, unfortunately, out on the West Coast. Um, you know, we're in such a unique situation to learn as much as possible and confer as much information as we can. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and maybe some of that can be poetic. Like, that's a cool idea, I think. Um, yeah, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, y'all. Well, until next time, bottoms up. I'd be having a double espresso, even though we're at a bar.
I guess a, a little chamomile tea to go to bed here. Oh, that's all I need. I mean, currently I'm drinking uh, LaCroix, which is so hashtag basic. Oh, I can't oh my gosh. It. That's so funny. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. I drink, I drink like at least one a day. Um, and okay. I buy a lot of them from Fred Meyer and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, oh, I mean, I'm a little sure. ashamed of it, but they're really good. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I'll just play my alcohol card and say that I'm also just about to pour myself a glass of, of wine. It's not rosé though, so I'm not totally basic. Good. Um, well, that's, well, that's great because the bartender would really hate us if we were just tea and coffee drinking and, uh, yeah. also, yeah, also a LaCroix. They'd be like, what is this, a bunch of drivers <laughs> all together? And, uh, you know, maybe we are, maybe we are on Maybe the next part of the segment can be on the night bus. We can hit the beat hard. <laughs> party bus. Okay. Yeah, the well, party bus. Good luck with your, with your play next week. Hope that goes yeah, awesome. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. So we'll probably, I probably won't be able to chat next week. We'll have to wait until the following week, which I think is okay, because you guys want to finish the book, right? That's not an insignificant amount of reading. Okay, yeah. Sounds good. All right, let's do this. Is that cool? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for working around my insane day today. Yeah, thanks for letting us be a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Absolutely. All right, take care. Good night. Good night.